Morning. Well, last year I led a group that was made up mostly of people who were very new to the church. And at one point, a few weeks in, one of the women in the group said to, to all of us, she said, you know, I have really enjoyed being a part of this church, but there is one thing that I really don't like. And at that moment, I interrupted her and, and I said, whoa, whoa, wait a minute. I said, just one thing? I said, that's great. That's wonderful to hear. I said, because if, if you end up sticking around here, I'm sure we're going to be able to add to that list if you just give us enough time. And everybody laughed, but the thing is, I wasn't really totally joking. I love our church. I think we have a wonderful, vibrant community with so many different strengths and gifts and uh, unique people and ministries. This is a tremendous church, but we have our weaknesses too, right? I mean, when we all come together as a church family, one of the things that we do is we pool all of our strengths together. We're stronger together than we are separate, but along with that pooling comes all of our weaknesses too, doesn't it? Uh, Over the years, I can think of some uh, examples just off the hot top of my head of people who uh, came to our church and were, were very new to it, And they gave me uh, feedback about their early experience of our church that was almost, for lack of a better word, gushing. What an amazing, wonderful place this is. How perfect our church is for their family. They've been looking for a church like ours all of their lives. And and I would stand and listen, and it really felt great to hear that. Um, But I noticed that sometimes what would happen is a year or two would go by, and those people would, uh, would disappear. And I think what happened often was that they became uh, disillusioned. At some point or in some way, we just did not quite live up to their expectations. Now, I really don't want to be misunderstood in what I'm saying here. I am not suggesting at all that we should ever be satisfied or complacent in any of our weaknesses in any way. I do think that we ought to be realistic about our weaknesses, but we ought never to want to embrace them. And it is the work of all of us as a church family, beginning with the elders, to be shoring up our faults and putting to death our sin and seeking to be the healthiest and most God-honoring church family we can possibly be. But my point is that, that participating in a church for an extended period of time is hard because it requires extending a tremendous amount of grace to the other people who are around us. Uh, involving yourself in a church for a year or two is relatively easy. It, it's kind of a, a honeymoon. But participating in a local church for 10 or for 20 or for 40 years I really believe that that's an accomplishment. And partly because that requires a person to learn how to deal with disappointment, to learn what it means to forgive and to put other people's desires and preferences ahead of their own. It requires being a person who understands what's really important as church life goes and to be mission-minded and to be able to seek and search out the Lord even when they have spiritually dry seasons or they're lonely or tired and so much more. You could add to that list. 
But what I really believe is that all across America, many Christians are asking themselves the question, is it really worth it? And is being a church really necessary? Is it really necessary? Is it really important for me to be a part of a local congregation? And what I want to do today is I want to take a look at this passage. This is such an important passage that uh, announces the beginnings of the church. This is a part of the church's uh, history. And so what I want to do is I want to take a little bit of time to explain this passage because it's a little bit complicated. And what I want to do is I want to talk about Peter's uh, confession. I want to think about what Jesus meant when he said that he was going to be building this church on a rock, uh, what the keys of the kingdom are. That's kind of a confusing sentence. And I also want to cover some of the debate around this passage. This is a very controversial passage in the New Testament. And then what I hope to do is to kind of circle back around and and bring us some thoughts uh, about my introduction. And I'm going to do all of that in the time that I have allotted. I did it last service, so I'm going to do it again this service, I hope. Well, let's uh, begin by just sort of setting the stage here and, and taking a look at this wonderful passage Uh, This conversation occurs later on in Jesus' ministry. Uh, We're in chapter 16 of the entire book, and so the cross is drawing nearer and nearer to him, and it begins with with Jesus asking his disciples a kind of a straightforward question. He says, who do people say the Son of Man is? Now, this uh, nickname, the, the Son of Man, is a title that Jesus used for himself, and it was a a title that emphasized his humanity. Remember, Jesus is 100% human, and so in that sense, he's very much like us. All of us are sons or daughters of of men, and, and, and his title pointed to his humanity. Now, there's another title that was used of Jesus, uh, and and that is the Son of God, right? Because unlike us, Jesus is not only 100% man, but he's also 100% God. Jesus was nothing less than God himself. Now, I want to ask you a question. Which title do you think Jesus used of himself more? Was he more likely to call himself the Son of Man emphasizing his humanity, or the Son of God, emphasizing his deity. And as you think about that in your head, let me ask you this. Which title would you have used more? Well, I fired up my Bible software, and I learned how to do a search on it, actually, to to discover the answer to this question. And as it turns out, there's almost no comparison. Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man in the Gospels 77 times. And he refers to himself as the Son of God in the Gospels four times. Now, why is that? Why does Jesus tend to emphasize his humanity more than he emphasizes his deity? That's a little strange, isn't it? Here's something that's also kind of strange. When you read through the book of Matthew all the way up to this point in chapter 16, what you will find if you do that is that while Jesus does not in any way or sense deny that he's God, he doesn't make it plain to everyone either. In fact, you could almost say that he hides that aspect of who he is from the people. For for instance, in chapter 8 of the book of Matthew, he cleanses a leper, and then he asks that person not to say anything to anybody else about it. 
In chapter 12, there's a bunch of people who are healed, but, but Jesus tells them after that not to make himself known. And even right here in this passage in chapter 20, look at what Jesus says right at the end. He says, then Jesus strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he is the Christ. What you could almost begin to believe is that Jesus was trying to keep his identity a secret. Why would he do that? Well, let's, uh, let's use Superman as an example. Uh, he was kind of secretive too, wasn't he? Always running around trying to pretend that he was Clark Kent. Uh, I'm not sure always why he wanted to have that secret identity, but I, I think maybe it might have had to do with people's expectations of him. Uh, for instance, if some, somebody were to announce that uh, Superman is up at the gas station right now, we would probably all head up there almost immediately, right? We'd, we'd pause the service and, and come back maybe, I, I don't know. And, and when we got to the gas station together, we would all be uh, possibly expecting that he would be doing something awesome, right? Like there would be some very well-armed criminals that were trying to rob the gas station that he would stop. Or maybe he'd be preventing a uh, fuel truck from exploding by throwing it into a lake or something like that. But what if when we all arrived, all that Superman was doing was just filling up his minivan, right? And we just paused for a while, and then he walked in, and he bought a hot dog, and and he, he, he came out, and he drove away. We'd think to ourselves, now, wait a minute. We got ripped off. We came all the way over here to see a Superman that we certainly were not expecting. Now, pull the illustration over. Jesus had to deal with people's expectations too. And it's important to understand that the people of Israel were expecting a Superman. Uh, They had certain uh, assumptions about what the Old Testament prophesied the Christ, the Messiah who was to come, would be. And some of those things they understood, others of those things they really didn't get. You see, they had this expectation that the Messiah, the Christ, was going to be a kind of a warrior leader. He would be someone who would finally take charge and overthrow the rule of the uh, Roman Empire. But the, the problem was Jesus did not come to do that. Jesus did not come to be a a conqueror at that time. He came to be a servant. He is the servant king. As as Mary Kay so well said, it it didn't really make sense. It, It doesn't seem like a king should be a servant. Jesus was born not to overthrow governments. He was born to die for the sins of the world. Jesus was not what the people expected. And so eventually, as you continue through the story of Matthew in all of the Gospels, the people rejected him, and eventually they crucified him. Now, why is this so important? Why did I go into any of that? Well, in part, it's important because it explains the disciples' response to Jesus' question, who do people say that I am? And their reply is, well, Jesus, the word on the street is that some people say you're John the Baptist. Other people say that you're Elijah. There's a guy over here who thinks you're Jeremiah. And everybody else just figures you've got to be one of the, one or the other of, of the prophets. And so what it seemed was that in general, everyone thought that Jesus was just a prophet, okay? He hit into this category over here, 100% man, but not this category over here, God himself. Jesus, they thought, was a man who was bringing a message from God. They did not believe that he was actually God. 
They thought there was something unique and powerful about him, but they didn't believe that he was the Christ simply because he didn't seem to fit the part. Anyway, Jesus then goes ahead and presses the question in on his disciples. He says, he says okay, I, I get it. I understand what everybody else thinks about me, but what about you guys, my closest and com- of, of companions and friends? Who do you say that I am? Now, this question of Jesus, if you look at the grammar, was, was, was plural. It was addressed to all 12 of the disciples. But it is Peter who kind of steps forward as a representative of the other 12. And in verse 16, if you look there, you, you, you might even, if you do this kind of thing, you might even want to underline this in your Bible because it's such an important statement. It says, Jesus said to them in verse 15, who do you you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Now, it would really be difficult for me to exaggerate the significance of this statement here of Peter, especially at this point here in the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, this confession of Peter's is the climax. It's the high point of the entire first part of the book. And here is why that is. Let me push a little bit further into my previous point. If you read through the book of Matthew, what you'll find is that Matthew, who is the author of the book, refers to Jesus as Christ throughout the book only as he narrates the story. He only calls Jesus Christ as he narrates the story. So, for instance, the very first verse of the book, uh, Matthew writes, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the Christ, Matthew says, right out at the start. And if you read on a little further, you get to the story of Christmas, and Matthew narrates that story as well by saying, now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. So again, he calls him the Christ. But what's so interesting is that if you read through the book of Matthew all the way up to chapter 16, apart from the narration by Matthew, there is not a single person in the story who ever refers to Jesus as Christ. There's not a a single person who seems to fully grasp that Jesus is the Son of God. There is nobody up until this point, it would seem, who recognized what Jesus' identity was. Not even the disciples. I mean, I'm sure that maybe they had wondered about it. They, They may have... Um, talked about it together. They, they probably had some inkling of it, but it is only here that, that finally Peter, convinced of it, boldly stands out and he says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. It's like Peter pointing to Jesus and saying, Clark Kent is Superman. He's Superman. And Jesus' conclusion is, yes, Peter. You've got it. And Jesus says, and you are blessed, Peter. Not so much, Peter, because you were the first person to recognize it, but because this truth itself, that yes, I am the Messiah. Yes, I am the son of the living God is a blessing to all who would receive it. And Jesus calls Peter 
Simon Bar-Jonah at this point. That was his given name. His father's name was apparently Jonah. And he does that to underline that, that, that this truth was not given to Peter by his, his father or in any natural way. He says, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. What a, a triumphant moment this was for Peter and, and what a triumph it was for all of the disciples. But the conversation uh, continues. Jesus goes on, and and this is where we get to the more controversial aspects of this passage. Take a look at verses 18 and 19. Jesus goes on, and, and he says, And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, again, this is a part of the passage that's a little bit difficult to understand. And it may be one of the most controversial passages in the New Testament, at least potentially. And the reason for that is that it's understood very differently by Catholics and by uh, Protestants. Roman Catholics believe that it was at this point that Jesus founded the Catholic Church on Peter. Uh, They would say that the church was built on Peter, who was given the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and at that point, Peter became the first pope. Uh, It's thought that Peter then uh, went to Rome. He had authority over the church at at Rome, Uh, not only authority over that church, but over all of the churches and that he was infallible in his church doctrine, and that Peter was just the first in a long line of successive popes who have continued all the way to this day with the current pope, Pope Francis. And you can trace back and name every one of those popes. And so it is believed that each successive pope has operated with the same authority that was given to Peter in this passage uh, right here. And actually, what's interesting is it's believed that each pope receives that authority, not from the pope that comes before them, but directly from Peter to each pope. Roman Catholics consider this the the basis for the pope's uh, authority and succession. Now, uh, we've got to ask the, the questions, of course, is this what the Bible is really teaching us? And uh, I would just say respectfully that I don't see how you can pull that out of the text here. Uh, There's nothing mentioned in this text right here or in the rest of the Bible as you read it, including two letters that we have that were written by Peter himself, 1st and 2nd Peter, that tells us anything about Peter having the powers of, uh, of of a pope. There's nothing that's mentioned about him having uh, successors. There's nothing about his declarations, about church doctrine being infallible. There's nothing that should make us think that he wielded a supreme authority over the churches. And in fact, if you you read through his life, which continues in the gospel and moves into the book of, of Acts after Jesus returned to heaven, his life doesn't seem to reflect any of these things either. Uh, An infallible Peter would not have made the mistake that he makes in the next paragraph, if you read that. The the one that we're in now is like Peter's high point. The next one is one of his low points. And then, of course, Peter goes on to deny Christ uh, three times. 
When you get to the book of Acts, you find that that Peter is not towering in authority over the Jerusalem church. You find that the church in Jerusalem is is his authority figure. He is underneath them. And that at one point, in fact, the apostle Paul actually has to confront and rebuke Peter on some very uh, serious mistakes that he made. So, yes, Peter is the first to confess Christ, which, which was wonderful and amazing. And no doubt he helped to build and lead the church, especially early on. But I think it's really important that we not make too much of Peter. Because if we do, we miss what God is trying to say to us. So what is it that this passage uh, teaches? Well, there's a really, really interesting play of words that Jesus uses here, and you could almost think of it like a pun. Uh, to help you, I'm going to put a little graphic on the screen uh, behind us here so that you can see this visually uh, a little bit better. And when Jesus says to Peter, you are Peter, Peter's name in the Greek, it's important to know, is the word Petros which means rock. It's a, it's a masculine word. Peter's name itself means rock. But this particular word, it describes a, a fragment or a stone. You, you can think of it as a small, loose rock. But then, in, in just this next part of the phrase, when Jesus says, and on this rock, I will build my church, he uses a different Greek word there. That's the word petras, which is a feminine word, and it refers to a boulder, uh, an immovable mass. You could even think of it as like foundation bedrock. So what Peter, so what Jesus is saying is this, is that on Peter, this small and modest fragment of a rock, Jesus is going to build his church, a boulder, an immovable mass. And what's important to notice here is the timing. Jesus could have said this to Peter at any point in his ministry, but what, what Jesus' confession, the, 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 part, the place that it falls into, is this, this place in time right after Peter's confession. And so it would seem that Jesus' statement here seems to be tied or linked to Peter's confession. I know that this is a little uh, uh, confusing, but here's what I think that you've got here. You've got Peter who, upon his confession of Christ, his belief that that Christ is the Messiah, the, the Son of God, is like a small, loose stone that is the very first fragment that will grow over time into the sturdiest of boulders as other as the other disciples and other Christians all throughout history follow Peter's footsteps in making the same confession. Peter is the first of many others who together will be the loose rock that Jesus will form into an immovable mass that will be his church. I hope that makes sense. One important thing to say about that, and that is that it is Christ and not Peter who holds it all together. Uh, In fact, in Ephesians chapter 2, Paul uh, calls all of those people who are a part of, of God's church, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. 
The Bible makes it crystal clear. Peter isn't the important part. Christ is. Christ is the cornerstone of his church. Okay. But what about this keys to the kingdom stuff? What, is, what does that mean? What, how does Peter hold the keys to the kingdom? Um, what does that mean? Jesus says in, in verse 19 to Peter, uh, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Well, what is it that keys are used to do? What do you do with keys? We do it today. We unlock things. Yep, we lock them. We lock the door. We, un- we unlock the door. The person who holds the keys controls access. So how is it that Peter, this small rock, as a representative of all who would follow after him in the church, how is it that, that, that the church together controls access to the kingdom of heaven? Well, what is the chief responsibility of the church? Think about that this morning. What is our primary goal as a church? What are we tasked with? To tell people about the gospel, right? We are the proclaimers. We are the heralds that we don't have to pay for our own sin. Jesus did that. He died for us to set us free from our sin so that we can receive eternal life, not by our works, but by his work. And what happens to those people who receive that message, who uh, share that faith of, of Peter's confession, who believe what happens to them? Well, the, the gates to the kingdom of heaven are thrown wide open, and they are ushered through to enjoy eternal life for all time. As, as the church proclaims the gospel throughout the world, a person's response to it d- determines whether they're still bound up in their sin or they're loosened from it by Jesus' gift. It, it determines whether or not the kingdom of heaven is thrown open or if it's locked shut. And so, in a sense, as the church proclaims the gospel, the kingdom is is opened up to those who share with Peter's confession, and unfortunately, it is closed to those who do not. And and I must say here, what a great responsibility that is that churches have. What Jesus says here is it it should uh, sober us uh, deeply how important this is for the church to do. Uh, um, There's a family who came to the church many years ago, and uh, there were four of them. They had two young teenagers. One was a girl who was about 14 at the time, and the other was 16. And the mother and the two teenagers had trusted Christ. They had, they had believed, but the, the father had not. And um, the son was just telling me this story a couple of weeks ago. He said, you know, one night at dinner, we were sitting around the table, and he said, my, my sister, who was 14, looked at my father, and she said, Dad, what are we going to do in heaven without you there? What are we going to do? And you know what happened? Later, he trusted Christ too. That had such an impact on him. And I think that that's the heart of this passage. The church is never to hold those keys stingily as if we are the ones who get to decide, are you good enough, are you good enough? No, no, no. We, we beg people. We beg people, we plead with people, we desire of people that they 
they would receive that great gift too. That's, that's one of the great heartbeats of the church, and a church must not lose that. To lose that is to lose the sense of responsibility that we have in holding the keys to the kingdom and proclaiming the gospel around the world. Now, I want to kind of draw my way to the end of um, this message and to close with just one more detail about this passage that's very small, but it's really important and I think wonderful. And that is its location. The location of this passage, believe it or not, is very significant. It took place outside uh, of a great city, and and the city, they're standing outside the the city limits, and the city was called Caesarea Philippi, and this uh, city was located about 25 miles north of Galilee, and it was situated at the base of a very, very tall mountain, very impressive. Uh, Caesarea Philippi was a very, very pagan place, and it had been throughout its history, the people there had worshipped all kinds of different gods, uh, everything from the Canaanite god Baal to uh, the Greek god named Pan, and they'd also worshipped several of the Roman emperors there. And the city was built on an enormous wall of, guess what? Rock. And it was a wall that loomed about 100 feet tall and 500 feet wide. It was an incredibly impressive site, and it was created to honor some of the gods of the city. Now think about this. What a place for Peter to stand and confess in front of these towering false gods that Jesus was the Christ the son of the living God. How dramatic. And better yet, for, for the, 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 the same place that Jesus would announce his church, for Jesus to stand defiantly in the shadow of this great rock wall and declare that a much greater rock, his church would be built and that not even the gates of hell meaning death itself, would ever be able to overcome it. Can you imagine Peter standing there in that moment, how small he might have felt, what a tiny fragment he was. And yet what Jesus was doing was was setting out to create an organization where all of those little fragments throughout history, all of those little loose, tiny pebbles and stones who too believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God, would be bound together in him to form bedrock, an immovable mass, and that they would be entrusted with holding the keys of the kingdom itself, brought to be God's adopted people, whom he loved and promised that they will be invincible for all of eternity. That is the church that Jesus set out to build and that even now he is building and holds together. I remember uh, about 15 years ago, I was listening to a famous uh, pastor talk and uh, he was talking about how hard his job was as a pastor. And he said that sometimes he has this little fantasy that he will quit his job and do something different instead. And, And his fantasy, he said, was to get a job driving a bread truck. And he, he said, you know, this would be great. 
He said, I just get in my truck, I, I make my deliveries, I, I, and, and I don't have to deal with anybody. I just turn off my phone. He says, I don't have to invest my heart in other people in any way. Nobody else's problems would be my own. And, and then I remember him saying, but you know what the best part would be? The best part would be that any time I wanted, I could pull over and eat some bread. And it sounded kind of appealing at that, at that time. And what he was saying was that church is really hard. And that sometimes he thinks it might be better just to go it alone. And I think this is one of the greatest temptations for American Christians today. To think and believe that it might be better just to go it alone. I uh, was thinking this week, I, I cannot imagine what my life would be like without the church. I don't know where I would be. I don't know what I would be doing. I don't know what my eternity would be like. Uh, my in- entire family, um, when, when I was born, none of us were believing people. None of us were Christians. We got involved with some people who attended a church, and my parents started attending a church. And I don't really remember when I trusted Christ, um, but I came to trust Christ, and all of us did. And, and, and we grew through the ministry of, of the church. And And I think, how many millions and millions of people is that true for across the world, across time? How many billions of people? And I was was thinking to myself, what would the church, what would the world be like if the church had never existed? Jesus had had, had never done this. Uh, The church is a messy, messy place. People, People call it a hospital for sinners, and that is so true. And it's so true that, that sometimes if you attend a church, especially for the long term, you will not feel like you're really receiving what you want or what you hope for. We all come into a church with certain felt needs, and, and those needs sometimes are not met. But I really believe that when you hang in there consistently, faithfully, week after week, over the long term, it will teach you and show you, especially as you look back over time, things that you never could have learned or seen on your own. I believe that the church teaches us lessons that we never would have even begun to think that we needed. And what you'll find is is that you will be able to experience the joy of seeing people who are far from God come near to him, in a healthy church at least. You'll get to see the experience of of other people walking through the gates of heaven as as the Lord throws the gates wide open to them. You'll see people who are released from their sin and their burden. And sometimes you'll find that that person is you in unexpected ways and in surprising ways. You'll get to watch people who are weak be strengthened and people who are hurting, helped, and encouraged. And you'll you'll see godly people who live out their faith right in front of you, sometimes all the way until their death, right before your eyes. And, And then you'll have an opportunity to be that same kind of an example to those people who will follow after you. The church teaches us so many things. It provides for us so many important 
experiences and teachings. And, and what we so often find, although it's almost never immediate, is that God will use those things to change you and to change other people. I'll tell you what, I almost never notice how I'm changing from day to day or from week to week. But sometimes what happens is I look back over the course of a year or two or five, and I realize that this change, that, I, that, that it was imperceptible to me. It, it has actually happened over time, and I think that's how God uses the church to quietly strengthen us, humble us, teach us how to deal for people that naturally we don't even like, and all of the things that come with it. And even with all of its blots and wrinkles, the church we find here is the instrument through which Jesus decided he was going to change the world. And I would submit to you that through the church, he has. Not completely, not fully. That time is still coming. Don't have that expectation yet, but do keep that expectation. And by his grace, through the church, Jesus is assembling tiny little fragments like you and me into something bigger and better and much more glorious than we could ever be on our own. Thank God for the church. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the church, and we confess to you that, especially here in this country, the church does not always seem to be what we want exactly, but you tell us that it is what we need. And we thank you for uh, countries like Iran and like China, where your church is thriving in an environment that it would seem it, it never should. Certainly, it's true that Nothing can stop the church. The gates of hell even cannot come against it. I would thank you for all of the experiences that I've had with church that have been healthy and good and have benefited me and for many of those painful parts of church life. I thank you for those too and for those how those have, have shaped me. I pray for any of those who have been injured by churches and, and hurt deeply. I pray that you begin to heal those wounds from those places that did not represent the idea that you had for what a church is meant to be. But we, try, we pray that you would help our church to be as healthy as it can possibly be. We pray that this would be a place that would honor you and as, that, as we seek to uh, do our work of helping people to become alive in Christ, we pray that you would strengthen that. We pray that there would be many people here who would come to know the, the life in Christ for the first time and that those who are drifting away would be brought back to you. We pray that it would be our great joy to know you and to serve you and to enjoy all that you've done and are doing. We pray that the relationships here at this church would be rich and deep and helpful, that we would be a, a place where one another uh, was was encouraging and, and sharpening to each other. So we pray that you would help the different groups and, and ministries that exist to encourage that. We pray that you would strengthen our leaders, but help us to be a people who are forgiving of one another and loving towards 
one another and who hope and, and seek the best in each other. And we thank you for the ministries that we have within this church, Buddy Break and Homework Help and for the home mission team and the world mission team and uh, others who are really seeking to take that news of the gospel that Jesus has died for our sins so we don't have to to the world. And we pray that you would strengthen those as well and that you would give those people that lead those teams and participate wisdom and courage and vision. Thank you so much for the church, Father, not just for this church, but for all of the churches. And we pray that as, as we consider what it means to be a small little fragment in that great rock that is your church, that, that we would play our part with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.